This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, the Prime Minister's mission to Alice Springs as pressure builds for a tough response to rampant crime. Also, the wrecking ball unleashed on homes in Queensland's Ipswich area almost a year since they were flooded. This means hope for local residents. This means they can have a better future. The house behind me here will be the first demolished, right next to a sporting complex where you'll see open space instead of misery and tragedy. And lawyers for athletes accused of doping complain it takes too long to clear their clients' names. They are completely isolated from their coach and training staff. So it becomes, you know, quite a confronting situation. If they challenge the result, you know, it can be up to up to two years. First tonight, the Prime Minister has sought to answer the appeals from the Alice Springs community for help to deal with rocketing crime. He's promised a modest funding boost for policing and social programs. Mr Albanese flew into the town today after repeated calls from the opposition for federal police and money to deal with the chaos. The Northern Territory Government has also announced a series of new alcohol restrictions. Jane Barden reports. Responding to building pressure, the Prime Minister quickly made plans to visit a turn in crisis and came with some new funding commitments. We will be extending the safety and community services uh, funding. That will be a $25 million commitment. Uh, We have $14.2 million available for high visibility police operations as well. $2 million for CCTV safety lighting. The pressure to act came from people like businessman Darren Clark. He's given up trying to protect his cafe from being broken into again and again. He's now focusing on protecting his bakery from escalating crime. Um, I've had 41 instances of crime in my businesses, uh, the most severe being a ram raid. business that we had in the uh, Todd Mall, I eventually closed that down with six months left to run on its lease. I just could not go through the repairs and rocking up there at one o'clock in the morning. What would you like to see? Uh, we just need some immediate relief for the town so people are safe here for a little while and they're not going to fix this very quick at all. Police crime statistics show business break-ins are up 56%, family violence up 54% and alcohol-related assault up 55% on this time last year. The head of Tourism Central Australia, Daniel Rochford, says the town's visitor information centre has been broken into and trashed 15 times in the last 24 days. The picture of our information centre is almost all boarded up now and um, we are hearing day in day out of home invasions, assaults. This has got to unprecedented levels. He supports calls from the mayor and federal opposition leader for the army or AFP to be brought in. Additional resources on the street through um, either the Northern Territory government's uh, policing or or in addition to potentially Australian federal police would be warmly appreciated. 
Peter Dutton on 3AW today. As the Indigenous women and the elders said to me uh, up in Alice Springs, you've got to restore law and order. If there was a, a no-go zone for police in, in Melbourne, if there were crimes being perpetrated and the police weren't able to do anything about it, we wouldn't accept that. There's been no commitment of any federal forces. The NT's police commissioner, Jamie Choker, said a so-called jackboots response wouldn't work. We're not going to arrest our way out of that. I'm not sure that the imagery of Australian soldiers dealing with First Nations people in a way that sees them having to affect arrests of them and place them in police vehicles and the like is the imagery that we really want. He's calling for more effort to address the underlying social problems and poverty causing the crime. He's also pointing out that the federal Labour government removed its controversial alcohol restrictions in Aboriginal communities and Alice Springs town camps in July. We do see in our recorded data that alcohol prevalence in the relationship of offenders and victims is continuing to grow. The NT government had refused to replace the restrictions with its own scheme, saying that would be racist. But both the Files government and the Prime Minister have now listened to the calls from health professionals, including Dr John Boffa from the Central Australian Aboriginal Congress. We haven't got time to muck around trying too many new things. We've got to do what works and we have to bring back the measure that worked. NT Chief Minister Natasha Files says she's bringing in new restrictions for three months. We will now have takeaway alcohol-free days on Monday and Tuesday. We will also have alcohol-reduced hours on the remaining days from 3 o'clock to 7pm only for takeaway alcohol. We will also introduce one transaction per person each day but some, like businessman Darren Clark, think more alcohol restrictions will just result in more crime. People are getting broken into so they can actually steal alcohol. If you want to put more alcohol restrictions in, they're going to break in even more. Both the federal and NT governments have committed more than a billion dollars over 10 years to improve Aboriginal housing and a bit more money for social programs. Aranda leader Graham Smith heads Lura Tippa, which represents the town's traditional owners. He says the town's crime and alcohol problems are caused by underfunding of surrounding remote communities, which urgently needs addressed. Alice Springs is not in crisis. We are a direct result of the bush being in crisis. Building houses is fine. What about the roads to get to that house? What about the water, the pure quality water for the house? What about community development around that house? But if there's a billion dollars there, then by damn, where is it? He doesn't support bringing back Indigenous alcohol restrictions and instead wants remote communities to be allowed to have their own social clubs to stop people coming into town to drink. We want the government to go the next step so these mob can drink on their own community. The Chief Minister Natasha Files says she realises not everyone will be happy with the new alcohol restrictions. Jane Barden reporting. It's almost a year since the southeast Queensland flood disaster. Nine people were killed and more than 9,000 homes and businesses damaged. Now the demolition of homes deemed unsuitable for rebuilding has begun, with places in the Ipswich district west of Brisbane the first to fall. The joint state and federal buyback program is targeting those homes most at risk of dangerous and fast-moving floods. Rachel Mealy reports. First came the heartbreak of the flood, now the wrecking ball finishes the job. Paul Harding's home in the suburb of Goodner is one of the next in line for demolition, 
the water reached halfway up the walls on the top floor. I've already received my settlement. Uh, we received settlement uh, November last year, uh, one of the first ones to go through. Paul Harding and his family have since bought a caravan and are driving around Australia before they resettle, but he says they'd love to go back to the same area. Oh, 100% I'll be back out that way. I have made lifelong friends out that way. The overwhelming support that we had in that area, we will definitely be moving back out that way somewhere, um, hopefully somewhere a little bit drier. So far, 130 homeowners have joined the scheme. The program was set up by the state and federal governments and is worth about $750 million. The homes in Goodner will be demolished first. Others across the region will follow. Ipswich City Councillor Paul Tully says the bought-back land will become public space. Well, the land's being transferred to the Ipswich City Council. It becomes um, vacant land. Um, it can uh, be used for parkland or, or open space. No more buildings going to there. We're not going to allow new homes to be built and new families to go through the same traumas that people have had you know, in the, in the last few years. So it becomes open space. That's a little difficult if there's people who don't sell out, they'll be surrounded by open space. In some cases, they might enjoy that. But um, these areas will never again have homes on them. Homeowners were offered a buyback price based on the pre-flood value of the property. But since then, house prices across Brisbane that weren't affected by the flood have risen significantly. Councillor Tully says some homeowners are now having difficulty re-entering the property market elsewhere. One person there in uh, Enid Street at Goodner, he he said to me that um, the amount that he owes the bank on the mortgage would leave him with very little if he if he joined the buyback to be able to get a, you know, another loan, and that's a difficulty for some people because even though they're uh, receiving reasonable amounts based on the value of the homes in early February 2022, um, they've still got a lot of money to pay out, you know, stamp duty, legal fees and so on when they move elsewhere away from friends and family. So that's certainly an issue. Milton Dick is the local federal member. He was in Goodner to watch the demolition work. This means hope for local residents. This means they can have a better future. And this means our community remains strong, resilient. It's a tough community but it needs a hand from time to time, and this is exactly what this program will do. The house behind me here will be the first demolished, right next to a sporting complex here, where you'll see open space instead of misery and tragedy. Sharon Smith is the New South Wales President of the Planning Institute of Australia. She says as the climate changes, Australian governments will need to adopt the principle that if the risk can't be reduced, people need to be removed from the risk. We need to be doing our strategic thinking, strategic planning and working out how you accommodate additional population in areas outside of flood and bushfire and other major significant hazards. Uh, so it's always important to be looking to five and 10 and 20 years ahead uh, and doing your studies to actually better house the population. She says authorities will become better versed over time at implementing schemes like buybacks. It's never a, a perfect sign. Science, but we certainly need to prioritise the preservation of human life and be a, probably a little bit more conservative in relation to planning for future development and maybe not be led down a path of, well, I own it, I deserve to have a house on it. If it really is in a significant hazard area, we should be 
supporting um, authorities to say you need to move up the hill a little bit or move um, away from the bushfire risk a little bit. Sharon Smith, the New South Wales President of the Planning Institute of Australia. That report from Rachel Mealy. To Tasmania now, where there's growing concern the state's most vulnerable children are being left in dangerous situations because of an under-resourced child safety system. New figures from the Productivity Commission show over half of all investigations are taking more than a month to get underway, and in most cases the allegations of neglect or abuse are proven. Here's Alexandra Humphreys. The Productivity Commission's annual report on government services is ringing alarm bells for observers of Tasmania's child protection system. Tom Lynch is the Acting Secretary of the Community and Public Sector Union. Clearly uh, these appalling statistics are a result of underfunding in our child safety system. We have been saying that for a long period of time and the government has done nothing about it. So the underfunding has also led to uh, high turnover, so we have uh, experienced workers leaving the system and then we have difficulty filling positions um, that become vacant because everybody knows how difficult it is to work in child safety. It took Tasmanian Child Protection Services at least a month to open more than 55% of its child safety investigations last financial year. That's up 11% on the year before. It's also taking longer to finish those investigations. The majority take more than three months to be finalised. Ultimately, though, 83% of investigations end up substantiating the allegations. So we're seeing uh, um, more substantiation of the cases that come in. We're seeing a longer period uh, for investigations to start and a longer period for investigations to finish. What that means is that vulnerable children are being left in a vulnerable situation for longer. Mr Lynch believes the core of the problem is under-resourcing of the child safety system. He says there's not enough workers to cope with the caseloads. What Tasmania has now is, is the child safety system the Rockcliffe government is willing to pay for. And they keep making changes that are not in the best interests of children and families in order to keep the costs down. The Tasmanian government says its triage system for child safety notifications connects families to the best possible services in a more targeted approach. And a high substantiation rate is evidence it's working. Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe acknowledges there are problems. He says his government is investing. Governments both past and present of uh, all uh, colours uh, have failed our children and young people. A few years ago, Tasmania introduced a triage system to assess child safety notifications. Now the clock doesn't start until a notification is referred on for a full investigation. Anne Hollands is the National Children's Commissioner. This is just a, a, another statistic um, for after decades of data showing that our child protection systems everywhere are under great stress and, uh, and, the, and that the workers are under enormous pressure and they're not getting out to the families to, the, to, to check on the children fast enough. Ms Holland says all notifications need to be taken seriously. The child protection system is it's like the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. It is the, our, our sort of method of last resort when 
you know, people have told us that they're worried about children. Uh, we should not be keeping children waiting. She says other services such as health, social services and housing need to better support kids and families to take pressure off Australia's child protection systems. We're allowing the problems to escalate by not acting earlier and and then we're intervening as a sort of a last resort. That is not a winning strategy. It never was. And, uh, and this, uh, you know, we should be very worried about the, the overwhelmed child protection systems in this country. The National Children's Commissioner Anne Hollands, Alexandra Humphreys, with that report. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, a journey to the centre of the earth where the giant core has been slowing down. I like to think of the inner core as a planet within our own planet. I should say uh, first that no one should panic because the inner core didn't come to its full stop. The Indian government's decision to block the airing of a BBC documentary on Prime Minister Narendra Modi's leadership during the 2002 Gujarat riots is being criticised by his opponents and free speech advocates. The riots in the country's west were one of the nation's worst outbreaks of religious violence between Hindu and Muslim communities. Critics say the ban on the documentary, which even includes sharing any clips on social media, is an assault on press freedom and part of a broader crackdown on anti-government views. Gavin Koosh reports. This is exactly what the authorities hoped would never happen. The streets have become a battleground. The group 21 years on from the violence in the western Indian state of Gujarat, the BBC has been asking questions about Narendra Modi's role as then Chief Minister. The first of a two-part documentary series focuses on a UK government report that was never made public into the 2002 riots and the response from Modi as that state's top official. The documentary features interviews with the UK's Foreign Secretary at the time, Jack Straw, and an anonymous former senior diplomat about what the inquiry found. At least 2,000 people were murdered during the violence. The vast majority were Muslim. We described it as a pogrom a deliberate and politically driven effort targeted at the Muslim community. The violence was widely reported to have been organised by an extremist Hindu nationalist group, the VHP, who have a relationship with the RSS. Narendra Modi joined the RSS at a young age in his home state of Gujarat and the documentary charts his rise through the ranks of politics in the lead-up to and during the 2002 riots. The violence was triggered by a train arson attack that killed 59 Hindu pilgrims and led to retaliatory attacks killing hundreds of Muslims. Hartosh Singh Bao is the political editor of The Caravan magazine, an English-language publication based in Delhi. He says the documentary has resurrected claims the Modi government wishes would remain in the past. In some senses, there is nothing new, but the Narendra Modi government had considered it the past. Because of his election, they thought this was an issue that was dealt with and no longer relevant. And now it has come to the forefront once again, raising questions about Narendra Modi's political past and the path he's followed to become prime minister. The Indian government has now invoked emergency laws to block the BBC documentary, ordering social media platforms to take down the accounts that had been sharing clips of it. The government has dismissed the documentary as anti-India garbage and propaganda, while the BBC says it was rigorously researched according to the highest editorial standards. 
Hartosh Singh Bal says it's part of an ongoing attack on press freedom in the world's largest democracy. This is a story that's been going on for a long time. Just recently, people who were at the forefront of finding out evidence that is related to 2002, the violence that happened at the time when Narendra Modi was heading the state of Gujarat, were imprisoned after the Gujarat police filed a case. People who've been raising these issues have been targeted. In general, dissent, questioning by the media is being now restricted to a very small segment. Sangeeta Barua Pasharati is also among those in the independent media who are worried about a crackdown on press freedom. She's the national affairs editor of The Wire, a New Delhi-based news website who points out the BBC documentary was unlikely to reach a mass audience across India in any event. To me, it sounds more like a you know action of a totalitarian government to force press censorship. But if you ask me whether the public is affected by it or pub- if, whether public is actually general people on the street is talking about it, I don't think so because Modi is still a popular figure. And the other thing what he had managed to do is also keep this kind of news away from public, which actually is a television uh, watching public. So but the thing is that the major newspapers, which are of the highest circulation, have actually kept this news away. So so the, uh, the, the television media. So then where do public get to know about it is also a question at hand. Human rights advocates argue India's approach to free speech is damaging its credibility on the world stage. Minakshi Ganguly is the South Asia Director of Human Rights Watch. And this kind of action, this kind of overreach, this kind of anxiety to to silence criticism does not reflect well on on the Indian government and its its policies towards uh, freedom of expression and speech. Manakshi Ganguly from Human Rights Watch. Gavin Coote with that report. West Australian Olympian Peter Boll has been warned it could take several months for the investigation of his positive drug test to be completed. A few days ago, Athletics Australia announced the track athlete has been provisionally suspended from competition because of the result. Boll is strongly protesting his innocence and waiting for secondary tests. Here's Isabel Masali. I believe I can be the best in the world and and that's the next goal. After being named WA's Young Australian of the Year, athlete Peter Boll is waiting to find out if he'll take out the national award tomorrow night. Right now, the professional runner is making headlines for the wrong reason, facing every athlete's worst nightmare. He's been provisionally suspended after returning a positive result for the banned substance EPO. His lawyer is Paul Green. He's kind of been in shock since this news first came. I mean, let's presume that he's innocent, which I believe, and they showed up on his doorstep out of nowhere and provided him, presented him with documents saying he failed the drug test. The result has shocked the sporting world, and the 28-year-old Olympian has declared his innocence. Paul Green says he's waiting for analysis on a secondary sample, but the whole process can be lengthy. It does take long. It does. I mean, I've had cases where athletes have been provisionally suspended for over a year and ultimately were exonerated. Part of this is it's just the necessary way the process goes. They'd rather go slowly than quickly to make sure they get everything correct in their estimation on their end. And also on our end, we don't want to rush it once we get the information because we want to make sure we're ready to go into the hearing with our experts before we go in. But the whole point of sports arbitration is it's supposed to happen quickly and not take as long as a court proceeding. Dr Catherine Ordway is an Associate Professor and Sport Integrity Research Lead at the University of Canberra. 
the test was collected in October 2022 and it, from what I can understand, it doesn't really fit with a time that an athlete would benefit from taking synthetic EPO uh, given the season doesn't start till March. It also doesn't add up for me that um, he's not a wealthy athlete. EPO is not a cheap thing to do. It requires having a professional group of people around you to support you medically to make sure that you're safe. She says there aren't many laboratories in the world that are accredited by the World Anti-Doping Agency, so getting results can take a while. And in the meantime, there can be a huge impact on athletes. Even if they manage to absolve themselves of any wrongdoing, it's really challenging and, and the trolling that we see on social media is is quite often horrendous. Um, and it's also extremely expensive to defend yourself. Athletes are having to pay for lawyers, which can often be expensive and long and drawn out. It means they often lose sponsorships and other commercial opportunities. Of course, while you're provisionally suspended, you can't compete. Lawyer Tim Fuller knows the process well, representing athletes, including swimmer Shana Jack, who's just completed a two-year doping ban. After a lengthy battle, it was ruled she didn't deliberately take a banned substance. Tim Fuller says it can be a confronting situation and the process to clear your name is too long. And on occasion, they are completely isolated from their coach and training staff. So quite a confronting situation when they receive that first adverse analytical finding. Depending on if they challenge the result, you know, it can be up to up to two years. And in your experience, what's the sort of personal impact on the people that you've represented while they wait? It's devastating when there's all these unknowns, like, you know, how did this substance actually get into my system? And so what an athlete then sets off to do is to go down that long pathway of trying to establish how it got into their body. And, and on occasion, that's just not possible. And with the process being so lengthy, he's reminding the public not to jump to conclusions. Isabel Masali reporting. Well, now we're going to hear about an enormous ball of solid iron, just a bit smaller than the moon, that's been behaving in a very peculiar way. Where is it? Well, it's the core of our planet. Surrounded by liquid and thousands of kilometres below the surface, it spins at its own pace. But the strange thing is, a team of scientists has found that in 2009, the Earth's core, which had been spinning faster than the planet's surface actually slowed down. To explain, here's David Sparks. Humans have never been able to get anywhere near the centre of the Earth, so it's no surprise that its workings seem pretty mysterious. It's part of our planet that Associate Professor Hrvice Kalcic has studied extensively. So the inner core, I like to think uh, of the inner core as a planet within our own planet. Uh, it's essentially a solid metallic or iron ball that is suspended in the liquid outer core. And it's approximately the size of Pluto. And uh, it is, as I said, suspended in the vast uh, liquid outer core. And I think this helps to understand intuitively why that solid ball would be free to rotate slightly faster or slightly slower than the rest uh, of the Earth. Now, a new study by scientists in China has found the Earth's core slowed down in 2009. If you've been watching a lot of sci-fi movies, you might think that sounds like really, really bad news. But Professor Kelchich says 
everything's just fine. I should say uh, first that no one should panic because the inner core didn't come to its full stop. Um, what it simply means is that uh, the inner core uh, is synced with the rest of the planet, so it's slowed down from its faster rotation. So the core was spinning faster than the surface, and now it's not. It's a process that scientists think is consistently happening, and the previous change was in the last century. But why doesn't the Earth's core spin at a constant speed? What causes it to slow down and then speed up? It's all got to do with electrical currents. Uh, you can think of the Earth and the Earth's interior uh, in its centre as a place where, first of all, we have a huge gravitational force uh, because of the mantle that surrounds the, the core. And on the other hand, you have an electromagnetic force because of the magnetic field that's generated and maintained in the liquid outer core. So you can think of these two forces or torques as being in a constant battle. Uh, and you can see intuitively why the inner core would want to uh, rotate slightly faster or slower uh, than the rest of the planet because of the, these two forces. And when I say slightly, that rotation could be on the order of uh, 0.1 to 1 degree per year. It's pretty much uh, 1 millimeter per second or just 100 meters per day faster or slower than the rest of the planet. Right, so it's quite a minuscule difference. It's quite a minuscule, yes. And while there is absolutely no threat to life from this slight variation, Professor Kalchich says the core is vital to life. For one thing, its existence helps create magnetic fields that protect us from the sun's radiation. Kirsten Banks is a science communicator and an astrophysics PhD candidate. She says there's a reason why the centre of the Earth fascinates us. Well, it's funny, despite being an astrophysicist, I do actually think about the middle of the Earth quite a lot because... The way that we study the inside of our Earth is actually a very similar way to how I study the insides of stars. And as humans, we are the universe trying to understand itself. So we have an inherent curiosity about the universe around us and even the world underneath us as well. And understanding what's happening below us can probably help us with what's happening around us as well. Science communicator Kirsten Banks speaking there with David Sparks. I'm Samantha Donovan. Thanks for joining me for PM. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. After three years of doggedly sticking to a COVID zero policy, last month China made a sudden and unexpected U-turn. Today, what we do and don't know about the biggest COVID outbreak the world has seen so far. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.